entitled the sermon, Caught in the Middle, and you'll see as we move through these verses why that sermon title very much makes sense uh, in uh, Israel's experience of these years. And I was just thinking about this. There is in your Bible, very likely, a blank page. Have you ever noticed this? There's a blank page in your Bible, and this blank page um, probably is in your Bible. I've checked a bunch of them this week, and they, they almost all have this. There is a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and oftentimes as they transition between that, you might check, there is a blank page, or at least an open page, where there is um, a reminder in the intertestamental period, God was silent for four hundred years. No scripture was given during that period of time. And so between the testaments, 400 years, as scholars refer to it, as of silence from God. Now, God was not giving his scriptural revelation during that period of time, but oh, God was at work. And what blew my mind is how much of that blank page is actually written in, in prophetic detail, from Daniel chapter 11. It's truly remarkable. So if you're wondering some of what took place during that period of silence that your Bible has not a lot to say, go back to Daniel 11 and read it in advance. This is the advanced copy that fills in so much detail about the blank page in the intertestamental period. So let's look at that together today in uh, incredible detail. Age of Empires is where I'm going to begin, verse uh, 1 through 4. I want to actually pick up on the last verse of chapter 10, remembering the chapter breaks were added later on. I think they probably made a mistake in adding the break in the chapter uh, and and not including verse 1 of chapter 11 in chapter 10. That would have been a better flow, and I'll show you why. Look at the flow here. I tell you what is inscribed... In the book of truth. Now, this is the angel, this mighty warrior angel speaking to Daniel. He says, I will tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. That is what God has declared will be. There is none, he says, who contends by my side against these, that is, the prince of of Persia and the prince of Greece. No one contends along with me but Michael, the archangel, your prince. And then look at how it flows. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now the big question is, who is the him referring to? And oftentimes we think, well, it's Darius the Mede, right? I don't think so. I think it's referring to Michael, the archangel. How Michael came to his assistance when he was withheld by the prince of Persia in chapter 10 for 21 days and then was able then to be relieved to go to Daniel because Michael showed up to help, I think similarly, um, he came to assist Michael in this angelic conflict that was taking place in the the empire change that was underway when Darius the Mede came in, and certainly then Cyrus followed, who would be the one who would send God's people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. So, Again, we're seeing this glimpse into an angel warfare reality that oftentimes we just don't see and and can so easily forget, as we saw last week. Let's go on from there. And now this mighty warrior angel that's been talking to Daniel continues with the vision. 
Now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth, who we know historically, I'm adding in some detail just so for clarity, this is Xerxes um, that we can see now as we look back. Daniel didn't know his name yet. Um, He shall be far richer than all of the other kings, right? And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. This is a a fight that he would regret because he kind of uh, poked the bear over in Greece. And you see the progression that repeats through the book of Daniel, right? Babylon, then Medo-Persia. Now we're at this, this transition point. The bulk of the focus of our text in chapter 11 is going to be focusing on the Greek empire as it's broken out after Alexander the Great. Then a mighty king shall arise, this is Alexander the Great, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills, and as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. That is, all four directions of this kingdom, the the, the known earth that he conquered, are going to be given to these different generals, but not to his posterity. Note this, uh, any relation of Alexander the Great was taken out, killed. Um, He had a child who was um, insane and then another son who was born posthumously after his death. And so both of them were killed and these generals fought for over 20 years for power to divide the kingdom. This is all prophesied in advance. Nor according to the authority with which he ruled, they won't be as great as he was. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So, Here is a a timeline of the first four verses of this. I don't expect you to take notes and get this all down. But to say, our emphasis in this um, chapter is all at the bottom. What happens as these four different generals kind of break out the power and battle it out to see who can be the greatest and who can conquer the most territory, okay? Now, that's just the first, that's verse 2, three, and four. Imagine, 45 verses total. Look at the timeline I'll show you at the end of this. This is going to be something, okay? (laughs) Oh, wow. The land in between. The land in between. Verses five through 20. Israel is stuck in the land in between. And I want to show you how in these coming verses, you will have a battle of the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom. Let me show you on a map what this looks like. Um, Two of these generals that took power from Alexander the Great after his death, um, one was the Seleucid kingdom and the uh, uh, Ptolemaic kingdom down down in Egypt. So the Seleucids in the north, kind of Syria and to the east, and then the Ptolemy empire down in Egypt primarily and Libya as we know it today. These two warring empires... (laughs) They fought back and forth, and their descendants fought back and forth, and on and on. And note this, caught right in the middle is Israel, the land in between. They are caught in the middle. They become a super highway to be tread upon for year after year after year. Have you ever played the game Risk? Anyone played the game Risk? Okay. 
This was a favorite of ours. After finals were completed at Bible school, someone would get out the risk board and, oh, the intensity of the competition. (laughs) Israel's experience in these years was often like my experience playing risk, okay? It was awful. I, I, I had basically no kingdoms, no power, no army, and I got traded back and forth until I was basically gone. And this is what they're about to experience over these years. It was a conquest, an age of, of, of empires, back and forth, trading blows. So, let's go into it. Then the king of the south shall become strong. That's the Ptolemaic Empire. But one of his princes shall be stronger and then, uh, than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. Remember, all of this is prophecy. All of this is prophecy. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south, the daughter whose name is Bernice, we know from history now, shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and, his, uh, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. Now, just <laughs> we're barely into the text, and remember this. This is the one vision that Daniel said, I understood this. <laughs> I was in awe of that. The one, he's like, I get it. I understood this one. None of this history had taken place. And even with the history, I'm looking at this and like, man, who is being referred to and what's happening and this king and that. So historically, we're able to find that it was Antiochus II who married Bernice, the daughter of Ptolemy. This was a kind of an old-school way of, of taking the tension out of the empires. Well, you know, you're least likely to attack an empire if your daughter is there. So we're going to make peace. We're going to try to create a peace treaty. The problem is, is Antiochus II was already married. So he divorces his wife to receive the daughter of the Ptolemy king in the south, and marries Bernice. That doesn't fly with Laodice, his wife, who was not happy to say the least. She kills Bernice and her son, and Antiochus II, was, was also, the king, was also assassinated, and his ex-wife then took power on behalf of her son, Seleucus II. Okay? Drama. <laughs> Drama. It's the kind of thing you expect to see on some TV show somewhere. Not pretty. Caught in the middle? Israel. We go on. And a branch from her roots, uh, and a branch from her roots, one shall arise, from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. And he shall come against the army, army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off uh, to Egypt their gods and their metal images and the precious wealth, vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Okay? A little commentary on what's going on here. Bernice's brother has a vendetta. He sees how this goes down and he's like, I'm not going to let that stand. So Ptolemy III leads a successful raid up to the north from the south 
right through the land of Israel, into Syria to avenge his sister's death and recover the idols of Egypt that were plundered earlier. His sons shall wage war and assemble a a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast tens of thousands down, but he shall not prevail. Okay? You see the, 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 the ferociousness of this conflict. We've got warring kings, arrogant, greedy, boastful, filled with pride. We will be the greatest. And again, the echo of Alexander the Great is moving in a lot of these movements and, 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 and stirring this great conquest. We're going to conquer the world. Back and forth they go. And in the midst of it, tens of thousands fall. And Israel is tread upon over and over and over. The superhighway that moves right through Israel is a wake of destruction. When we were in Israel... I asked our tour guide, why are the hills so barren? Why is this so desolate? And he said it wasn't like this. At one, at one time, this was like a forest. You would see trees all over the place. He said it's the result of, of scores of conflicts and wars that would completely devastate the area. And then in order to rebuild, the, the trees were cut down. Sometimes invading armies would cut everything down so that they couldn't rebuild. And as the rains fall and the lack of foliage on the hills is there to hold the dirt, the dirt would be washed into the valleys, and you have this barren, rocky wasteland that is left. You can see it to this day. The wake of devastation as the wars rage. The king of the north shall rise, uh, raise again a multitude greater than the first, And after some years, he shall come with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people, Daniel, shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. Again, prophecy, prophecy. There's a point along the way where some of the Jews in the land are like, you know what, we're sick of this. Let's join forces and take sides, and they do, and they fail. Note this. There's no mention of God's people raising an army of any significance uh, or any lasting impact. They are an afterthought. They're not even in view. It's, It's like a blip on the radar screen. Here you are, mowed over. Again and again. No king, no, no, no pride in the nation, no celebration of return. It's a bleak view for God's people. The forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for shall, there shall be no strength to stand. He who comes against him shall do as he wills. And none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land, that is, 
Jerusalem in Israel. How will he stand there? This is the king of, uh, of the north. He will stand with destruction in his hand. They are truly caught in the middle. God's people caught in the middle, trying to sort it out in the middle of, of dark, evil, warring empires. We go on. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, and he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand. This is the king of the north seeking to accomplish victory over the king of the south. Gives his daughter to destroy them, but it won't stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall return, uh, turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn, in his insolence, uh, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. So the king of the north is attempting all kinds of things, and it's just not working out great for him. Some commentary on these verses. I'll, I'll finish up this section. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. He's gone. King of the north is taken out. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Again, very precise prophecy that Daniel is given from this angel. This is what God has decreed. It will come to pass. Here's what's happening here. Antiochus III now, in the north, gives his daughter, Cleopatra, you may have heard of her, to Ptolemy V um, in order to gain advantage over Egypt. Again, this was kind of a reversal of what happened before. Well, it doesn't work. Why? Because Cleopatra sides with her new husband in Egypt and not with her father in the north. Antiochus III decides to take the coastlands, and he runs into Rome. Now, this is significant. This is one of the first moments that Rome enters the equation, and historically we see this. He is turned back by Rome. In the process, his son Antiochus IV, who we know is coming on the scene soon, that is Epiphanes, the, the self-entitled uh, God manifest, he is taken hostage by Rome and is raised in captivity in Rome. His first son, Seleucus IV, reigned for a short time, but had to raise taxes in order to keep Rome happy, and he was then killed by poison very shortly after he took the throne. So, again, just this raging turmoil that's taking place. Here's the fun timeline if you're interested in screenshotting that. Um, that's what that is, and that's how it all plays out. And if I were to go through in great detail, we would literally be here all day. Uh, there's just no way we could go in depth, but you can if you want to dig deeper. The history is there, and it is precise. A precise fulfillment exactly as God decreed it. He brought it to pass. I was struck by these verses in Habakkuk as I thought about this mess. The mess of warring empires and the collateral damage that follows. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and fortifies a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, Habakkuk says, 
that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. This is futile. It's pointless. All of the death, all of the destruction, what is it about? And then he points to a certain future. Friends, this is so true. As the prophets faithfully did time and time again, oh, we need to be reminded of this. What is sure? What is worth your time? What is a worthy focus in this life? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the kingdom that is coming. Every other kingdom is fickle and fading. The kingdoms of men are temporary. Let's go on to one of the darkest chapters for Israel, foretold in incredible detail by the Lord, Antiochus the Despicable, that is my title for him, Um, not Epiphanes, the Despicable. Listen to verse 21 as the angel describes this horrible season of persecution to Daniel. In his place shall arise a contemptible or despicable person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He doesn't have the right to rule. He works his way in, conniving and scheming and flattering his way in, and boom, takes power. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant, There's a lot of question about who that is. Uh, Oftentimes the language here when you're talking about covenant is a reference to the Jews and the practice of faithful worship. We do know that there was a high priest who was uh, 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 killed by Antiochus Epiphanes and replaced. He put Jason in his place, just a completely corrupt and compromising high priest. From that time, an alliance is made with him. He shall act deceitfully. So one of the things Antiochus was great at is peace, peace, right? I promise peace. Here's an accord. Sign it, and it's all going to be great. And then he would pull away from that accord, and after they had let their guard down, he would completely squash them, acting deceitfully. He shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Oh, underline those words. But only for a time. That's significant. So significant for us to remember as well in our day. Only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south. So when Antiochus reigns, he's in the north. He is, he is carrying on that long-standing, um, not-so-noble tradition of warring against the south. The king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away. And many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. So there comes a point in time where Epiphanes, 
Now, Antiochus makes some kind of agreement with the king of the south after he conquers him, and they sit down together and eat together, quote-unquote, in peace. But guess what? Both of their hearts are plotting evil. They shall speak lies at the same table. Again, prophecy. This is prophecy. But to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Note that. At the time appointed. Who appointed it? God. He is ruling and reigning sovereign even in these evil days. And he shall return to his land with great wealth. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. And at the time appointed, he shall return. This time he comes back to the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. He meets a very formidable force. For this time, the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. There's a lot of question about what this is, but historically it's clear. These were ships that sailed from Cyprus under the banner of Rome. This was a Roman navy exerting strength. And Rome turned back Antiochus in his tracks. I'll say more about that in a second. He shall turn back and be enraged at the action against and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. This is describing all of Antiochus's just horrors unleashed on God's people in Jerusalem. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So Antiochus comes down to Egypt and he wants to to conquer once again the Ptolemy Empire. He comes down with his forces arrayed. And there is a, 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 Roman, uh, uh, what's it, a Roman senator who stands in front of Antiochus. And the royal navy is there in, in full. And he faces down Antiochus and he says, basically, go home. Go home. You're not doing this again. Go home. And Antiochus has a moment where he pauses. He's not sure what to say. He, he's... Any, any other situation, he would have been laughing at this man who would stand in front of his forces. And so as he's pausing and contemplating what he's going to do, the senator takes his staff that he walks with, and he walks over in the sand to where Antiochus is standing, and he draws a circle around Antiochus. And he says, you are not going to leave that circle until you give me your, your answer. Basically, no consulting, no delaying. Tell me what your answer is right now. And Antiochus says, I will go home. And he returns. And he is repelled by Rome, but he is so humiliated in that moment. Absolutely enraged in humiliation. And where does he go to take that out? Israel. He marches back toward his home, and on the way, he unleashes all hell on God's people. And the boundaries that were in place before, he shatters them and attacks them and profanes the temple. This happened exactly as it was prophesied. 
He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help. And, when, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble. Look at, look at these verses. They will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits its appointed time. Dreadful days for God's people, ordained by God, And used by God, not because God is evil, God is not evil, but He can, for His sovereign and all-wise purposes, employ evil days even to refine His people as they trust Him and as they stand. This is our God, our sovereign God. Now we finish this section this last section with what I'm calling the self-exalting king. Now, this is significant because as you read, once again, we're looking prophetically at, at mountain peaks, and here comes a valley between verse 35 and verse 36. Most scholars believe there is a massive chasm of time that is passing between these verses, and I think we jump from the, uh, the shadow of the Antichrist that very much Antiochus fulfilled. I would add Hitler, Mussolini, and others have carried the spirit of Antichrist as well. Now we come, I think, into a place where these prophecies have yet to be fulfilled and will someday be realized on this earth by the little horn as he rises up in power the Antichrist himself. Verse 36, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He shall, uh, and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. I, I just locked on that verse. He, that is the Antichrist, shall prosper until the indignation. The word used there is the same word used in uh, Daniel chapter 8 in reference to the tribulation. Until the indignation, the tribulation is accomplished as it's been ordained. Because what God decrees shall be done. There is a clear and blatant statement of God's absolute sovereignty jumping off the pages even in some of the darkest times the world will ever know is it all out of his control has God completely lost control is he hoping but not able to to do with this 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 antichrist no he is in complete control bringing to pass exactly as he has ordained To the detail, it be done. 
This Antichrist will pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall pay no attention to any other god. He shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortress. Basically, his god that he worships is power, raw power, control, uh, to, to establish his victory and his might instead of any other gods or goddesses. Now, this is interesting because this helps distinguish us from Antiochus Epiphanes. He kept his gods, right? He maybe forsook one or two of these, but, but he still had gods. The Antichrist will call for worship of himself as God. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver and precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. Now, I think you see here a, a, a kind of an anticipation of the mark of the beast happening here. Those who honor him, he shall honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall go, uh, come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of the treasuries of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. He shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. That would be kind of a, a summary of his aim, the Antichrist. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Where is that? That's Jerusalem. And look at how this chapter ends. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. I'm grateful for that last verse. You know, it may seem for those who are under this experience that that verse just is never coming. Where is that last verse? When is it going to come? Lord, bring this to an end. Someone stand up against this, this, this horrible, evil man. The fuse is lit. He will be brought to an end. How will that happen? It will happen at the hand of the King of Kings. Jesus Christ will return. The Mount of Olives will be divided in two. And He will tread down this man. And He will mark the end of the evil kingdoms of men. It was, it's at this moment where the sequence of evil reign ends. And Jesus Christ establishes His millennial kingdom. The King of Kings. The Good King. The, the, the king that King David foreshadowed, this time the perfect one, the righteous king, will rule and reign 1,000 years. 
and then new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever. Our response to these things, man, that's a lot. There's a lot of stuff in there. I was struck with the level of detail of this prophecy. Three things would encourage you to consider. Number one, do not set your hope on the fading kingdoms of men. This chapter alone reminds us how fickle-hearted and fading the kingdoms of men are. Oh, how easy it is, especially when it comes to an election year, to say, oh, if only we could just get this guy in the White House. Everything would be better. It's not how it works. It's not how it works. Who do we need ruling and reigning in our hearts and someday on His throne on this earth? King Jesus He is the hope. He is the focus. He is the one we go to when all hell's breaking loose around us. I'm not saying we shouldn't participate. I'm saying vote, but keep your eyes fixed on Him. And try your very best to put men and women in leadership positions who do the same, who have their eyes fixed on Him. Second, God is sovereign even when evil seems to triumph. Oh, friends, we sit with Job week after week here. We hear his anguish. We hear his friends with their formulas of God, their little packages with little bows on the top. This is how God is. This is how he works. Job's like, no, that's not the correct assessment. You're wrong, brothers. You're getting it wrong. He's crying out. Does it it seem like evil is winning? Yes. All the more so when this chapter comes to its fullness and the little horn rises and treads down God's people. God is still sovereign. He is in absolute control. He is bringing to pass history as He has written it beforehand. He is good. He is able. And He will bring it to an end when time has reached its fullness. There is an appointed number of martyrs that must be killed for the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. That number has yet to be fulfilled. And in the end times, that number will rapidly increase. God has appointed the fullness of that number. And when that number is completed, the end will come. Number three, God has His King, and He is coming to reign forever. Don't ever doubt this. There is a righteous King. Our longing for righteousness in rule and policy and kingdom is a right longing, and it is going to be fulfilled someday. We're just not there yet. God has His King seated next to Him in power and glory. So in a sense, we find ourselves caught in the middle as well. Between the cross of Christ and the trumpet of God. How are we to live while we're caught in the middle? How can we learn from this chapter? What does it look like to live and, and, and be faithful when it seems like God's people are pushed this way and trampled over here and killed over here and mistreated over here and increasingly things kind of close in on the church? What are we to do as we are living in middle times? would encourage you in closing with this verse. 
Hebrews 12. Let me just take part of this and emphasize this. Friends, brothers, sisters, let us run with endurance. There's a key. Persevere in faith. Set your hope where? On Christ. Note this now. Run it. We're running it. That's leaning into it. We're pushing through the hardships. We're we're trusting Him. We're leaning into it. We're pacing ourselves. We're running with endurance. The race, and, and, and note this, that is set before us. Another way to say that, that is marked out. One of the things Daniel 11 shows us is that history is written before God brings it to pass. Every detail is ordained. Nothing will come into your life that surprises God. He marked out the the course, and then he calls you to run it. Well, how do we do that? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Learn from his example. Depend upon him. Cling to him. Fix your eyes on Christ, not on all the mess. Don't get stuck out here. Fix your eyes on him. We get him when we finish the race. He's worth it. He is the prize. How did he run? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Suffering first, then realization of glory. He despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How are we to run? Anticipate all that is coming. Lock your eyes on Jesus Christ. Set your hope rightly on Him and run that race. You know what's great is that we don't have to run alone because there are days when we are weak and we are tempted to just pull up or even just pull off on the side and just just sit down. Friends, if you're there, oh, just speak up. Speak up. Let someone sitting by you know, I'm having a hard time. This was a tough week. It's hard. This race is wearing me down. You can get people, come alongside, come on. We can do this. Let's run together. We run together. Good Shepherd Bible Church. And we get Christ. We get Him. He is worth it. Let's pray. O sovereign God, Lord of time, King of the nations, Jesus, We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you don't just start the thing and then walk away and and let it just happen however it goes. No, Lord, you ordain not just the big things, but all the details. You're a God of detail. You're a God of perfect and absolute sovereign rule and reign. You are working and bringing to pass exactly as you have purpose to do. You accomplish all your good pleasure. May that remind us to trust you all the more. When things seem to be coming off their hinges and and the world just seems to spin out of control, Lord, we can rest in you, that you are in control and you are good and you are working. Lord, we thank you for the way that you refine us, even thinking of Job and the trials that you ordained for him to walk We thank you for the way that you can employ even hard times, even pain, even suffering to bring us to a stronger place of trust in you, 
to show us more of your faithfulness and your kindness and your love in the midst of our trials. Father, make us a faithful people. Help us to live well, and Lord, help us to die well. I give praise to you for Alberta Whitman, for her clinging to you for all the years you ordained for her. Help us to run that race faithfully all the way to the end and cross that finish line and get the prize of you, oh God. While we wait, we cry out as well, come Lord Jesus, come. This world is a mess. It is a mess. We long for the return of our King. Come Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.